Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 5, and let's just pray. Lord God, thank you that we are here. I thank you for these women who are running hard after you and digging deep into your word. And I thank you that um, your word is for us and it teaches us. It's a manual that we can walk by and live by. So I pray right now, God, that you would um, speak through me, that you would, that I would speak only those words which are directed by your Holy Spirit, and that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to understand your precious word. Amen. Okay, so Patrick took away my earrings again, and he gave me a mic where I have to stand still, no pacing. So, all right, we are almost through with the first letter of John. Um, as I was preparing for this, reading these 12 verses over and over and over, I remembered something that my granddaughter Riley said when she was three. Um, I made some comment to her and she said, what you said one time? And I thought, where did that come from? But I politely responded and repeated what I said. And again, she said, what you said two times? And I thought, well, I just changed the subject and we didn't go on with that, but I kind of wanted to ask John, what you said 25 times? I mean, this is, it's clear that he wants us to understand this because he has said it over and over in different ways. All right, we're going to divide this into three sections and we're going to first look at the first three verses which concern obedience. All throughout the Bible, we see examples of God's natural creation obeying him. Um, think about just a small example. Story of Jonah. Is that there? Oh, it is, okay. Um, story of Jonah. The prophet totally disobeys God. The winds and the waves come up when he calls and creates the great storm. The big fish shows up when it's called, swallows Jonah, spits Jonah up, Jonah finally, still with a disobedient heart, goes and does what he's supposed to do, and then he's sitting on the hill afterwards pouting about it. So he still has a disobedient heart, but um, the tree, the plant, obeys God and dries up, and the worm, or comes up, and the worm obeys God and eats the plant. So all of God's natural creation obeys him. You can think of, I mean, the Bible's full of examples. Um, and we... I know most of us have, or lots of us have, children or grandchildren, and we're sometimes amused, sometimes frustrated at, you know, when a child will come as close to disobeying as he can without quite stepping over that line. Well, I'm pretty sure that God is not amused when we do it. He's probably not frustrated either, but I think he's grieved, don't you? We're grieved when our children don't obey. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. I think he also loves a cheerful obeyer. So what John is telling us in these first three verses is, we have been born of God, we love him, we love his children, we're family, mostly functional family, sometimes a little dysfunctional, but we're family. And we demonstrate this love by keeping our Father's commandments. That's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, isn't it? But like Chris asked last week, but how? 
And it all comes back to that perfecting love from chapter 4. As our love for our Father matures, and as we begin to get just a little inkling of how immensely He loves us, when we learn by experience that He really is a faithful God and a good Father, we prove Him o'er and o'er, as the old song says, we know that we know that we know. We find the sweetness of trusting Him. And we read this Bible for what it is to us as believers, as children of God. It's a love letter. Think of the person you love most in all the world. Don't you want to just do anything you can to please that person, to bring joy? So that's why verse three can say, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments aren't burdensome. Doing religion is a great burden. Trying desperately to earn or deserve God's approval on our own is a great burden. But Jesus says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, I think gives a good summary of the obedience that God desires from us. This is the message version. God's readiness to give and to forgive is now public. Salvation's available for everyone. We're being shown how to turn our backs on a godless, indulgent life and how to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. This new life is starting right now and it's whetting our appetite for the glorious day when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, appears. He offered himself as a sacrifice to free us from a dark, rebellious life into this good, pure life, making us a people he can be proud of, energetic in goodness. Okay, right now I want you to just silently read John 14, verse 15 on the screen. Is that spoken as an order or as a promise? Does it say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Or does it say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? The promise tone was always there in the way Jesus said it. But until I understood the love relationship that he has with me and desires with me, I just couldn't hear it correctly. If we will simply be women who let God love in us every moment, we will naturally be women who are obedient to God's good and perfect will for us. So thinking of that loving obedience leads us right into verses 4 and 5, which talk about victory as overcomers. One of the Greek goddesses was Nike, spelled N-I-K-E, swoosh. 
That word Nike means victory. So what should be the result of that loving obedience we're talking about is spiritual conquest of this world. Right. Have you listened to the news lately? John wrote this a really long time ago, right? We certainly aren't meant to take seriously overcoming the world in 2016, not with this election coming up. Actually, the world wasn't really any better shape in John's day either. But for whichever century we're talking about, verse 4 says, for whatever is born of God, that's us, overcomes the world. If we are born of God, then we are also born for God. And we are armed with a weapon which can repel and conquer. Verse 4 goes on, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We all know that we live in a very real, very powerful, very alluring, very crushing world. But we can take heart. If we are believers in God, then we know that we are born of God. So we have his divine nature within us. Philippians 2.13 assures us that it is God who works in us to will. That means to want to or to desire to, determine to, and to do his good pleasure. It is God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. That's a wow. Our faith allows us to cling to Christ in opposition to the world, sometimes even in contempt of the world. Now, what I'm not saying is that we have contempt for or opposition to anyone in the world who's not a believer yet. Jessica Siri said last week in our discussion time that every person, every person, is handcrafted by a perfect God. So beautifully said and so true. So we dare not look down on or shun anyone who's in the world and doesn't yet know Christ. That's not what's meant by overcoming the world. What that weapon of faith does for us is that it purifies our hearts, even as our love is being perfected. It sanctifies us in a way that the world no longer has sway or dominion over our lives. It allows us to see an invisible world at hand and to realize that this present world isn't even worthy to be compared to that world where we now belong as believers, as citizens. Okay, let's review a minute. I want answers. What's our weapon to overcome the world? Our faith. So our faith in ourselves, faith in Jesus. So can anyone tell me what's the, known as the faith chapter of the Bible? Hebrews 11. Okay. So having listed all these faithful people in Hebrews 11, then um, the writer of Hebrews says, and I'm going to read this from the message version from 13 through 16. Each one of these people of faith died. Not yet, in, not yet having in hand what was promised, but still believing. How did they do it? They saw way off in the distance a world, and they waved their greeting and accepted the fact that they were transients 
in this world. People who live this way make it plain that they're looking for their true home. If they were homesick for the old country, they could have gone back anytime they wanted. But they were after a far better country than that, heaven country. You can see why God is so proud of them and has a city waiting for them. One of the questions in our homework, I wish I could have been in all your groups and heard your answers, but it asks us to think of a powerful testimony of eternal life that we've heard from another believer and how it influenced our faith. My grandmother lived out her faith quietly her whole life. But for me, the most powerful moment was her death. She'd been sick for a really long time. And you know how um, pain over a long time just draws your face. And she hadn't smiled for a long, long time. And her eyes had gotten um, glazed over, kind of. And there was just no, there was just no life in her. And we had learned from the nurses that her death was really imminent. And it just happened that just my mom and I were there with her. So we were standing on either side of her, holding her with her limp hands in our hands. And all of a sudden, she squeezed our hands. She opened her eyes. And they were clear and bright. Her countenance changed. She smiled the most beatific smile, and we watched her walk into heaven. I can never deny that. And then the sweetest sidebar to this was my uncle, my grandmother's son, was on his way to the hospital and didn't get there in time. But as we were talking about it later, at the very moment that she died, he heard in his mind, in his heart, but he heard clearly my grandfather's voice say, welcome home, sweetheart. So to me, that's, there's no denying um, that world that we're going to, and we can overcome this world by a faith in Jesus Christ who has gone to prepare a place for us. There's a story about the, I'll switch to something less emotional. <laughs> There's a story about um, a soldier in the army of Alexander the Great. He was not acting bravely on the battle, in the battle. He lagged behind when he should have been forging ahead into the, into the battle. So Alexander himself approached the soldier and asked his name. The man answered that his name was also Alexander. Supposedly, the general said, then get in there and fight or change your name. Alexander the Great wanted his name to be a symbol of courage. What's our name? We sang it. I am a child of God. We are children of God, the born-again ones of God. So to be born of God means to share his Nike, his victory. Jesus declared in the Gospel of John, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We should be and can be on earth what he is in heaven. Chapter 4, seven, verse 17 says, as he is, so are we in this world. 2.6, 6. 
we should conduct ourselves as he conducted himself. 1-7, we should walk in the light as he is in the light. This victorious faith, which is our weapon in overcoming the world, results from maturing love. Loved by Christ and loving him. The better we know and love Jesus, the easier it is to trust him with our battles. That is practical Christianity. Dr. M. Scott Peck tells a story about an old monastery that had lost all of its effect and influence as secularism gradually gradually, um, creeped in and took its toll until there were only five monks left and all of them were over 70. There was a small cabin in the woods nearby where an old rabbi came for retreat sometimes. The abbot was just literally agonizing over the death of his order, his spiritual house that he loved so much. So he decided to visit the rabbi, desperately hoping that he might have some advice. The rabbi was sad to say that he didn't have any advice to give. But he also knew as a Jewish rabbi what it was like when the spirit had gone out of the people. So they wept together. And just as the abbot turned to leave, the rabbi said, the only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. Well, in the following months, the monks pondered this cryptic statement relentlessly. The Messiah is one of us? Which one? The abbot? Or maybe Brother Thomas. He's a man of light. Or maybe Brother Eldred. Brother Eldred does get crotchety but he's almost always right. What about Brother Philip? He's really passive and pretty much of a nobody. But he does, always, he does have that gift of always being there when you need him. Of course, the rabbi couldn't admit me. I'm just an ordinary person. But suppose I am the Messiah. Oh, God, not me. So, as they began to think like this, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them was the Messiah, and on the off-off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves in the same way. So as people occasionally visited the monastery, they began to sense something strangely compelling about the monks' relationship, about their whole demeanor. So they began to become more and more often, bringing their friends. The younger men began visiting with the old monks, some of them even asking if they could join the order. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a vibrant center of light in the realm. They overcame the secularism and power of the world by being as Christ is in the world, loving him, and loving each other as he had first loved them. A believer, any of us, all of us, who reads God's word, meditates on it, talks with God about it, and worships him will experience this perfecting love. She will know it, and others will be drawn to it. Okay, we're gonna look at the last seven verses. This is what we know. The word know appears 39 times in this short first letter of John, eight times in this last chapter. There 
are certainties on which we can build our lives. In our family, we play a different version of I spy. Um, it's not something we literally really see, but we, an animal or a creature of some kind is always the object, and the spyer gives clues such as, um, I spy with my arctic eye a mammal which, or I spy with my rainforest eye a marsupial which, and, you know, we guess. So one day, um, Ethan and I were waiting for Riley to get out of school. He must have been about four and he said, I spy with my bicycle eye. Thank you, Cindy, I laughed too. And I said, oh really? Give me a hint. Gigi, that was the hint. So I began asking questions. Is there a boy on the bicycle? Mm-hmm. Um, does he have blonde hair and big brown eyes? Mm-hmm. Is he very strong and very fast? Mm-hmm. Is he so sweet and so kind? Mm-hmm. I said, is it Ethan? And he looked at me like, are you dumber than dirt? He said, no, Gigi, it's my imaginary friend Peyton. <laughs> well, I had never heard a word about Peyton before that time. But the boy I described certainly did sound a lot like Ethan. So remember at the first of this study, Chris pointed out to us that John was writing this letter because false teachers were infiltrating the church, preaching a different Christ. It sounded a lot like the real Christ, but it wasn't. John didn't want the church to be following an imaginary Jesus. Jesus is God. Say it with me. Jesus is God. That is the primary Christian certainty, and it forms the foundation of everything else. If you remember, Chris talked about dualism, which was a popular false teaching at the time. It's a highly complicated philosophy, but it basically says that a spirit couldn't be matter and that a spirit couldn't die. So it taught that Jesus was merely a man. The Christ came on him when he was baptized, and on the cross, the Christ left Jesus so it, wouldn't, so it didn't die. So there's enough in there to look a little bit like Ethan, but it's really just the imaginary Peyton. Jesus is not ours to invent as we go along. We may either believe in the Jesus that's presented in the gospel, or we may reject him, but we can't define him as we like. This false teaching was a lie from the pit of hell, but you can believe it was very cleverly and subtly injected into their thinking. The same liar was behind it who whispered to Eve, did God really say... It's why John told them in 4, 1 through 3, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. This is how you can know the spirit of God. 
Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not is not from God. This false teaching said that Jesus was born a man and died a man and the Christ was on him for a time. Truth or fiction? Clearly fiction. There are many false doctrines in our world today. One of our leaders went to a funeral over the weekend at a church where false doctrine was proclaimed. I want to read you a bit of what they proclaimed their beliefs to be. And this was in a written handout. We take the Bible seriously, but not literally. We believe the grace and love of God extends to all people, not just those who hold one particular set of beliefs. We're glad you've come, and wherever you are on life's journey, please know you're welcomed here. By calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean that we are Christians who believe that following the path and teachings of Jesus can lead us to an awareness and experience of the sacred and the oneness of all life. We mean that we are Christians who affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide one of the many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness in life, and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom in our spiritual journey. We seek community that is inclusive of all people, including but not limited to conventional Christians, questioning skeptics, believers, and agnostics. Know that the way, we know that the way we behave towards one another is the fullest expression of what we believe, and we find grace in the search for understanding and believe that there is more value in questioning than in the absolutes. Truth or fiction? God does not require blind faith from us. So this passage points us to the person who is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And further, it gives us testimony to bolster that faith. In 6 through 9, John explains the three-part testimony, and then in 10 through 12, he talks about what our response should be. Very simply, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' death, and the Holy Spirit testify to the unity of Jesus' divine human person. The basic truth presented is in verse 6. I'm going to read this from the message. Jesus, the divine Christ... He experienced a life-giving birth and a death-killing death. Not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth of his ministry and sacrificial, sacrificial death. And all the while, the Spirit is confirming the truth, the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, and the three in perfect agreement. If Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, did not take on himself our nature in his birth and bear our sins in his death, then he could not reconcile us to God. That's the simplicity of it. But there's, God's word is so rich, and there's so much symbolism, and there's so many layers. And as we hunger for more of the depth, he reveals, as we read a passage again and again, he reveals more of that. There were things I loved that came up in our leaders' discussion of this. Um, you know, the water um, is baptism and the blood is death and the spirit is the Holy Spirit. But um, the water, um, in birth there's water, there's blood and death. 
I mean, there's, sorry, in birth there's blood and water. On the Christ, blood and water flowed from Jesus' side. Our bodies must have blood and water to live. So much symbolism. God was present at the baptism in the form of the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove. And at the crucifixion, he turned the day dark. He caused an earthquake. He split the veil of the temple in two from top to bottom. People came out of graves. Jesus is truly our redeemer. We can count on him to make us new women. The spirit lives in us, abides in us when we trust him with our lives. We have this conviction of eternal life from the very spirit of God within ourselves. So finally, we come to the most important part. What are we to do with this incredible truth that we know? How will we make a difference in the lives of others? When Chris, Mary, Shauna, and I were discussing this yesterday, we looked at the, quest, the homework question, how does your story of redemption, your story of redemption, bear witness to the truth of the gospel? Shauna said that her desire was that her life would give weight to her testimony, not what she said, but how she lives. And that brought us to Chihi. Many of you know her, some of you don't. She went home to be with Jesus during the summer. But while she lived among us, she lived Jesus. She was very quiet and shy, but it was, she was an out loud testimony to everyone who knew her, even briefly. So in closing, I want her to share part of her story with you. And my prayer is that we would all be chihi bold as we overcome the testimony by our faith, as we overcome the world by our faith and the word of our testimony. I'm gonna pray and then uh, we'll see the video of Chihi sharing her story with us. Um, this was a difficult lesson. There's a lot in it. If you have any questions that um, are still lingering in your mind and you wanna discuss it, please don't hesitate to come to me or Mary or any of the other leaders or Chris when she returns. Um, and if we don't know the answers, which we very well might not, we'll certainly help you um, search them out. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the depth of it. Thank you for the unsearchability of it. But thank you that there are certainties by which we, on which we can build our lives. And Jesus, you are that certainty. You were fully man and fully God. You are fully man and fully God. And thank you that, um, as Ron says, you lived the life we should have lived and died the life we should have died. And because of that, we are, we can be a child of God. I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't have that certainty, Lord, that um, you would speak to their hearts that um, you have prepared a place. We love you and we thank you and we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.